Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a, a good rest of your week since I was on the air last. And for some of you, wherever you may be living in the world, it already might be Saturday. So um, happy early weekend to the to those of you whom are listening in, uh, who are uh, living um, elsewhere in the world where it's already uh, Saturday. You know, um, there was a lot of ground that was uh, covered uh, from the last time I was on the air, and um, I will have to admit that uh, what happened on August the 24th of 1814 truly was a day that um, would live in infamy. Uh, Of course, when I hear that phrase, a day that would live forever in infamy, uh, that phrase often resonates with Pearl Harbor. Uh, which happened on December 7th of 1941 uh, when uh, President Franklin Roosevelt uh, made the following statement that uh, December 7th, 1941, a day that will live forever in infamy. I believe it is fair to say that um, not just the United States, but elsewhere around the world there have been um, events that have um, been so profound and so moving that they have um, obviously uh, shook a certain uh, nation's uh, core of innocence, or they have um, altered the world's innocence as a whole. Of course, when I was in uh, college, uh, my final year of college, uh, that's when um, September 11th of 2001 um, happened, and that was uh, life-altering uh, for countless reasons. But I personally believe it's fair to say that each generation has experienced its own form of nine of nine eleven. Uh, for my parents, uh, the Kennedy assassination was their nine eleven. For my grandparents, it was Pearl Harbor. For people um, living in eighteen fourteen. The burning of Washington, D.C. was their 9-11. Many began to wonder, is our government going to be able to function? What, 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 what happens going forward now that the British have burned Washington? Where's the next target going to be? You know, the British already uh, sent a um, naval fleet into Alexandria, Virginia, just on the outskirts of D.C., and uh, the port town of Alexandria surrenders. They put up little resistance to the British. The British seize everything, including uh, private vessels. People do forget that uh, Alexandria, Virginia, was a port town at one time. Believe it or not, ships would come in and out of the Potomac River uh, to uh, bring goods in, uh, to send goods out um, to other uh, points, say, north and south along the coastline of the United States. So, for many Americans, there is a sense of, um, it's not just a sense of 101 fear, it's a sense of panic. It's a sense of not knowing what lies ahead tomorrow. Are we going to be safer, say, a week from now than we were just yesterday when the British burned Washington? Will there be a United States of America before the year 1814 ends? If I was living at that time, I think that would be one of the biggest questions I would have to ask is, will the United States as a nation exist 
still before 1814 ends. And of course, this is during a time uh, before we have such a thing as a 24-hour media. I'm sure there are many whom, um, whom are angry. Well, they have every right to be angry, not just by what happened, but the lack of, um, of intelligence, the lack of um, proper decision-making. As I mentioned from the previous podcast um, episode, there were a couple of taverns that turned away President Madison and his wife Dolly. Those tavern owners, including those living there, those um, individuals um, lodging there, were convinced that President Madison had sold out the country. Well, for as brilliant of a, for as brilliant of a, um, how do I say this about James Madison? He is very brilliant minded when it comes to um, understanding how uh, republics had worked. From uh, how do I say this? During the time that the Constitution was being debated, the United States Constitution, one of the big tasks that James Madison had assigned to him was to study how uh, republics from the past succeeded and why there were republics from years past that failed. James Madison was a very, very brilliant, um, he had a very brilliant mind when it came to um, scholarly things, um, doing his homework when it came to, um, when it came to uh, advising other delegates in Philadelphia for the, um, during the time that the Constitution was being debated and uh, what was to be added into the Constitution, so forth. But when it came to being a wartime uh, president, this is where James Madison is not at his best. Madison never served in the Revolutionary War, not that he didn't care. He just, uh, he had other, um, I believe it was medical issues that kept him from going well, if that's not bad enough, uh, the British have referred to President James Madison as Little Jonathan. From what I've read about uh, with regards to uh, the term Little Jonathan, Jonathan was this fictitious boy who um, had aspirations, wanted to um, do X, Y, and Z, but he somehow could never get over the hurdle. What I mean by it is that he... Uh, he didn't have enough resources to back him up with wherever he went, so the hurdles always got the better of him. For the British, they now see James Madison as this complete punching bag. They can knock him down wherever they go, and yet he has he doesn't have the, the guts or the balls to to stand up on his own two feet and um and say enough is enough. Well, I do have to wonder going forward given that Washington has been burnt, how will James Madison be able to finish out the rest of his presidency? I think it's fair to say that um, that this war, the longer this war goes, the greater the likelihood that the United States government could become bankrupt and broke to where the government may not be able to exist anymore. So really what James Madison needs is he needs a revival. He needs... You know, he had success the year before in 1813 when uh, American forces reclaimed the Northwest through the battles of Lake Erie, as well as Harrison's, as well as General William Henry Harrison's uh, forces uh, reclaiming Detroit and defeating um, 
the British at Moravian Town, or what's known as the Battle of the Thames, and and uh, along as well as at the Battle of the Thames, where uh, Tecumseh died, uh, and along with his death, the Indian Confederacy fell apart. So we need some kind of revival that will surpass what happened in terms of good fortunes from the year before in 1813. But these, but this revival is going to have to come very shortly. We we don't have months on our side, folks. We, we, we may need weeks. We may need a couple of weeks because, you know, U.S. forces to the north, they know that they're in a showdown. The big, the bigger question is, is can the United States being outnumbered to the north along the U.S.-Canada border, can they muster enough courage and enough men to be able to, um, to be able to keep the enemy in check to where not only would the enemy not be able to advance past Lake Champlain into the Hudson River, but by preventing them from doing that, can the can United States forces to the north ensure that America's uh, survival as a nation will, will remain intact? Well, we got a lot of ground to cover as always, but I think um, it's fair to say that we better get the show on the road. We're going to be also in for some uh, interesting um, sudden changes, not for the United States, but for Britain. And these sudden changes, in my opinion, will have some negative repercussions. So let's find out. Uh, What decision did British officials make on September 1st, 1814? A decision that, um, to me, was questionable, a decision that um, could start to raise a red flag or two, a decision that um, leaves a lot of people wondering, why now? Why didn't we think of this sooner? Had we thought of it sooner, would it have um, done? Would it have done them any better now? Well, so we have to figure out what what um, decision did British officials make on September first, eighteen fourteen, that was not for the better. Officials made a sudden change in leadership command with regards to their naval squadron, or I should say, their fleet. A fellow by the name of Captain George Downey, whom had held the rank of captain since January 1st of 1813, had previously uh, commanded um, a sloop known as the Montreal on Lake Ontario. This fellow is no stranger to um, America's second war for independence, but the timing of his new position could not have come at a more... um, unpredictable time. You know, if we think that the Americans have it rough, knowing that their capital was burnt, I mean, that's bad enough. I think the changes that the British have made now in terms of whom is going to be their new commander per their naval squadron, to me, um, is just as bad as they're burning uh, the capital. It's just as bad as they're burning America's capital. But of course, we also have to keep in mind that the British burnt America's capital as a way of getting revenge from what we did in um, Upper in uh, Upper Canada, what is present day Toronto, Ontario, when um, American forces in late April of eighteen thirteen. Not only had we defeated um, the British in that area, but we took it upon ourselves. The soldiers did by uh, burning government buildings and looting. 
um, private people's homes, uh, private property to where many uh, people were left homeless, especially families. And so British leaders were so embarrassed and angry to the point where, you know, they decided, hey, we're going to um, get revenge on the Americans and we'll stick it to them where they least expect it. And obviously, look what happened on August 24th, 1814. So it's fair to say that even back then, there was eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Didn't make it right, but that's how it um, happened, especially in, in a time of war. So for uh, Captain George Downey, uh, yes, he had previously commanded the sloop Montreal on Lake Ontario, but in August of 1814, he was um, assigned to join um, HMS flagship uh, Confiance, which was um, stationed on Lake Champlain. He officially takes command of the Confiance two days later on September 3rd. I'm also wondering if time is a factor here. You know, time can either work to our side or time can work against us. You know, we think we have all this time in the world, but we really don't. Yes, we do have to make the most of the time that we have on this planet. But when it comes to um, crunch time, whatever time we have simply may not be enough. Well, and I'll answer that uh, part here shortly. Captain uh, George Downey went about having to replace Captain uh, Fisher, whom was already in charge of the entire fleet. This just makes no sense. You've already got someone who was in charge of an entire fleet, and now he's being replaced at the last minute. This is where sometimes the British, of course it's happened with other nations, but the British were known to do this. Yes, they may have had the best army and the best navy in the world, but that didn't mean that they were immune from making mistakes at the last minute that uh, that had negative repercussions. Not just 101 negative repercussions, but beyond the 101 helm. So Captain Downey has replaced Captain Fisher, whom was already in charge of the entire fleet. Commodore James Yeo, Y-E-O, James Yeo, is the officer whom was responsible for making the change that was very questionable given Governor-in-Chief George Prevost's invasion of Lake Champlain had already begun. So it's the fault lies with more than just one person. You know, if I'm serving below Commodore James Yeo, you know, yes, you have to be very careful about how far you could go in questioning his authority, but deep down inside, I'm shaking my head. I'm thinking to myself, hey, I liked serving under Captain Fisher. I thought he was doing a great job. Why are we making this change now? And who's to say that um, the guy who's going to take his place is going to be able to know how to guide us in the right direction when we don't have a whole lot of time on our side? And also knowing that uh, George Prevost's invasion of Lake Champlain has already begun, so how is that going to impact him? Uh, Captain Downey, if if there is a, a good side to him, I'm not saying this guy is a bad person. It's just it's just how everything has fallen into place. The dominoes, the dominoes didn't fall at the right time. Captain Downey does have significant experience along um, European and Mediterranean waters. Okay, that, that's a good thing. But here's where uh, Captain George Downey's 
biggest hurdle lies. He had never sailed nor seen Lake Champlain in person, meaning he did not have any direct knowledge about Lake Champlain's features. Well, when I say features, folks, I'm talking about the Lake Champlain's winds, currents, island shoals. You know, it's so easy to think when we see a lake that, you know, it's just a body of water. Well, yes, it is. But even lakes themselves, or I should say bodies of water, have minds of their own. The winds can dictate a lot about whether or not a boat or a fleet might be able to uh, sail upriver or downriver. The currents can dictate a lot as well, too. And then the island shoals. Think about it. The shoals are, um, you know, they're, um, we often think of shoals in uh, shallower waters, but we do forget that shoals don't always, not all shoals are confined to shallower waters, but if you're going to command a fleet on Lake Champlain, then you better have done your homework. You need to know how to best navigate your uh, fleet. You need to know where the dangers lie so that you don't um, so that you don't come across a shoal or two to where your ship's holes break apart. And not, and we're not talking so much loss of cargo, but we're talking about dis- destruction of, of ships where they flatten out to where they are no longer uh, salvageable. So, <laughs> So, because uh, Captain Downey does not um, have any direct knowledge about the lake, about Lake Champlain's winds, currents, island shoals, this is going to prevent him from not getting thorough studies of what he would be going up against. In a short amount of time, folks, that's not fair to him. He didn't. Ask, I don't think he asked to be put into this situation, but upper level. Um, the upper-level chain of British command should have thought long and hard before making a last-minute change, especially with someone who had not had any experience on Lake Champlain's waters. Captain Downey is an outsider to the officers and crewmen of the entire fleet. He had never served with any of them previously except for First Lieutenant James Robertson. Well, that's great if you served with one guy before, But how much knowledge does even First Lieutenant James Robertson have of Lake Champlain? He probably has some basic 101 knowledge, but he doesn't probably have the full nine yards. I'm not um, doubting that guy's intelligence, but for Captain Downey, not only to not have knowledge about the lake's winds or the currents or the island shoals, but to not even have any... um, but to not have any kind of a connection with the um, with the crew just makes things all the more awkward. Um, given that the change of command came at an awkward time, what other factors worked against Captain Downey? Uh, for starters, he would not get an opportunity to earn the respect and trust of all officers. Yeah, it's one thing to be a commander, but you need to earn their trust and respect. If you don't, then... How are you going to expect to have a solid working relationship? It's just not possible. Secondly, he wouldn't be able to develop a strong uh, cohesion, or I should say a unity network amongst all crews within the entire fleet. This has to be about us, we ourselves. 
And with this sudden change now, if I were um, a British uh, sailor on one of these um, ships or vessels, I'm beginning to ask myself, hey, does the British, does the upper um, inner circle, or what kind of thinking mode are they in? Are they us, we, ourselves, or I, me, myself? That's a pretty easy answer. I, me, myself. September 3rd, the day of Captain George Downey's official command, Governor-in-Chief Sir George Prevost's army has already crossed the border into New York. Communication between Downey and Prevost is, it's not strong, but it's very minimal, rather. They do communicate, but it's through written messages or letters. Well, we can't blame we can't fully blame everything on captain george downey because this is where captain where uh, sir george prevost has now um aired sir george prevost did not prepare a fully written out battle plan well if you haven't written out a fully <laughs> detailed battle plan for say a change in command at the last minute then that's another factor that will work against you, and it's just going to complicate things even more. So many um, so many bad decisions all within a short time span. I mean, we haven't... Uh, there's been some skirmishes, but now you're asking someone who has never had any experience on Lake Champlain to command? To me, it just... It's playing with fire. What huge task lied before Captain Downey after he officially took command? The flagship HMS Confiance still wasn't ready for battle. What's going on here? You know, two weeks, I can tell you this much, early August, about August 11th, that's when um, the USS uh, Saratoga started getting uh, built it only took her about nine days to be built, and she was launched. So she's already beaten the HMS Confiance, which is about um, which has thirty six guns, ten guns more than the twenty six gun Saratoga. Yes, she may have ten gun, ten more guns than the Saratoga, but yet she's not even fully um, ready to go. She's still being worked on up until September fifth. She was launched on the uh, 25th of August, HMS Confiance, but yet she's still not 100% ready. So by September 5th, most of the crewmen, though, enter on board the vessel, with the last of them arriving September 9th. So uh, it is fair to say that the crew that is going to be manning HMS Confiance, they only have a short time to really get acquainted with this vessel. You know, it's one thing to serve on board a vessel, but you need to get, you need to be acquainted with it. You need to know how to best, how to be properly positioned when you're under attack. You need to know how to properly um, fire um, these long-range guns at at the uh, enemy. You can train all you want, but when you are pressed for time, knowing that your flagship vessel um, is not fully ready to go, it does make things all the more um, 
difficult even for those um, ships uh, below uh, that are within the fleet. But if that's, um, if that's not um, the worst thing, how about equipment issues that uh, hamper further delays, such as all military supplies having gotten towed in smaller vessels behind uh, HMS Confiance when entering Lake Champlain? Crewmen had to turned to using temporary locks for long guns from carronade locks. The carronade locks um, would have been used to help um, help with uh, pivoting for um, the long guns because, you know, it's not like, you know, carrying a, a rifle out on a battlefield or a musket and, and um, reloading it on your terms. You actually having to... Um, physically maneuver the long-range gun to where you have to, you know, prime it, and then you have to um, clean out the gook um, to where you can get a new set of cannon in there. And then once you have um, got everything ready to go, that's when you can um, fire your three- or six-pounder. But with a um, flagship being the, um, or frigate being a um, flagship or um, and all that, you're probably going to have bigger guns, like at least 12 or 24 pounders, maybe 16, 20. I mean, believe it or not, folks, cannonballs, as we most of us know, they're more than just your three and your six pounders, uh, depending on the size of your cannon. The big ones, though, like the 24 pounders you would find on uh, ships and all. Did George Prevost's forces successfully cross into New York on September 1st? Yes, this resulted in their securing Lake Champlain's northern end to seizing Isle Lamont, the, the near entryway of the, of the Little Chazi River. This is the site which Prevost sought to land his forces. So Prevost, I, I got to give uh, Governor-in-Chief uh, Sir George Prevost credit for, um, for staying on the ball if you're on the side of the British, that is. You know, I do have to show impartiality here. I can't favor one side over the other. I mean, yes, I. if I was living in the United States in 1814 and my loyalties were to my country, being that of the, of the United States, I would certainly want... I would be amongst one of the many um, Americans. You know, there's about 7.5 million Americans living in the United States by around this time. Yes, there are probably those whom are, how do I say it, they they were against war, simply in part because we did not have a uh, proper functioning army. But would I have... um, but would I be very concerned about my uh, the state of my country in 1814 around this time? Yes, I would. Would I have uh, answered the call of duty if I was living in uh, New York State or in uh, Vermont? Yes, I would have. I wouldn't have sat back and wanted um, the British to try to uh, not only defeat an American army or navy along Lake Champlain, but also... Uh, take over the lake, take over the lake, and then make your way south into the Hudson River, and then you know people forget that the Hudson River and the Atlantic Ocean connect one another. And guess what? British forces can eventually establish a link between the Hudson and the Atlantic to where they can shut off um, further uh, waterway access. 
for the Americans. So uh, this is just another scenario of where so much is riding at stake, folks. It's um, it's really it, think about this in 1776 uh, on Christmas night of 1776 as um, leading up to the invasion Washington's uh, miracle at Trenton. The the um, the phrase he wrote was victory or death. I mean, that was the mission. In other words, if we don't succeed with this mission, the content, the uh, the experiment behind um, separation from Britain comes to an end. Um, the Revolutionary War ceases to exist. I think it would be fair to say that in the aftermath of what happened at Washington with the burning, that any other battles that take place, whether it's just north of Washington and Baltimore or as far north as Plattsburgh, the missions are simple, folks. It's victory or death. Victory or death, meaning our nation's existence. Prevost's army on September 5th marched the last leg of their journey to Plattsburgh in two columns. The left column would be closer to the lake, whereas the right column would march south, or I should say marched south well further inland. This is not a bad idea for a commander who's a little bit uh, more on the cautious side. You know, you don't want to put all your forces together marching like closer to the lake, or you simply don't want all of them marching south well further inland. Marching them further inland may not be a bad idea if you have them all together, but I don't know if this would cross Prevost's mind, but if I but if I were George Prevost, one thing I probably would be concerned about is what if an ambush attack happened? But at the same time, I, I personally think George Prevost doesn't really even think that um, that the Americans would have enough sense to uh, engage in um, in skirmishes. But I think it it's also fair to say that um, that if Prevost has already underestimated, um, if he would go about underestimating um, the Americans when it comes to doing skirmishes, then he would be uh, playing with fire himself. That's just uh, that's just the way I uh, see it and all that. But um, but did any uh, current um, British progress get halted by the Americans? In other words, Prevost seems to have made progress, but did any of his progress suddenly get halted by the Americans? Yes, come September 6th, the British right column got, got slowed down, folks. How so? American forces cut down trees in the middle of the road, thus limiting the British right column from further advancement. This also led to widespread activities where U.S. forces from multiple outlets, being militiamen, Aiken's Rifle Company, they partook in skirmish raids to shooting at British officers resulting in deaths. If there's one thing the British don't like, is the fact that when the enemy takes fire at their units, sometimes the sold, sometimes the officers are the ones that get hit. In European warfare, if there's one thing that European nations agreed on, was that you were to never fire upon an officer. It was just a very ungentlemanly, ungentlemanly like thing to do. Well, we learned in the American Revolutionary War that uh, most notably at Bunker Hill, Saratoga, and some other battles, 
It was okay to take out British officers. Why? Because if you take out the officers, then how will their how will their um, units below respond? In other words, how will the privates? How will um, how will the basic um, common soldier know how to respond if his superior commanding officer has been taken out? Well, as I uh, said just a few minutes ago. Um, U.S. forces from multiple outlets, being the militiamen, Aiken's Rifle Company, they had a lot of success in shooting at British officers that did result in deaths, including um, wounding British officers to where their um, actions or their participation would probably get um, further reduced. So despite this halt in progress, the British under Prevost eventually... um, entered Plattsburgh and controlled the village to the edge of the Saranac River, but the British have the British have endured a setback. They have seen 200 of their own troops get killed or wounded. When you have that many killed or including wounded, it's going to be hard to replace um, it's going to be hard to make up that deficit. For the Americans, they had um, 50 uh, soldiers killed and wounded. Regardless of the number, it can be a tough replacement, but if you're the British and you've seen anywhere from 200, around 200 of your soldiers, including officers, being killed or wounded, that's that's a bigger deficit than, say, just 50. But for the the Americans, this is a partial victory. They have slowed down some kind of... um, progress. They have modified things on their end. They have to stay on the offensive. You just can't wait, sit back and let the enemy come to you. You've got to go to the enemy if it means doing something uncommon. Where did things stand uh, battle line-wise come September 7th? For starters, the British had occupied Plattsburgh with George Prevost having established his headquarters there. Total forces around... um, September 7th stood, believe it or not, folks, at just shy of 8,100 officers and crewmen fit for duty. That's a a good-sized number. However, I think it's fair to say that even with that size of a number, it doesn't mean that everybody is on the same page. And we learned that from the previous podcast episode where, yes, the the British had far more um, staff crewmen, but yet there were officers from below whom had just come over from Europe who did not like George Prevost. Isn't that lovely, especially when you have a golden opportunity to rout your enemy and to basically not just beat the enemy, but perhaps see to it that the nation that that the enemy uh, lives under might collapse to the point where the United States doesn't exist anymore? Shouldn't you probably be putting some of those personal feelings aside? <laughs> Wishful thinking. As for the Americans, they station, they were stationed south of the Saranac River along the peninsula between the Saranac River and Cumberland Bay, which enabled them to take control of a key crossing or a crossway known as uh, Pike's Ford as well as operating the two small fortifications, I should say the uh, blockhouses, that allowed for, um, for, um, for our men to be able to fire, uh, to fire at the enemy from uh, different uh, rooms within the uh, blockhouses, as well as Forts Brown, Moreau, and Scott. 
for Brigadier General Alexander Macomb. I tell you, this guy's a genius. He modified the existing um, issues. He knew that there were British snipers nearby. You know, snipers, you know, when I think of snipers, I think of uh, what happened back in the early 2000s when that um, sniper named, the man who was a sniper known as uh, John Allen um, Mohammed um, went on that terrible rampage that that left um, Virginia and uh, Maryland and D.C. on um, on the highest um, elevated alert there was for a couple of weeks. People were afraid to go outside. They didn't know how to go about best living their lives daily. You couldn't blame them. Thank heavens he was finally caught um, and he was sentenced to death. But when I think of snipers, I think of uh, people whom, um, whom are firing from long ranges, people whom we can't see people who uh, disguise themselves well undercover and will do anything to uh, take out someone um, who is of, say, higher rank or someone whom uh, they just simply don't like. So for Brigadier General Alexander Macomb, he modified the dilemma or hurdle involving British snipers by firing what was called hot shot. I know some of you are thinking, what in the world is hot shot? Hot shot is what we call um, a round shot. A round shot um, that is heated before firing with the intent on destroying enemy objects, which in this case, Brigadier General Macomb's uh, men successfully did. They obliterated 15 private buildings, including the courthouse. Now, I know it might sound uh, unfortunate on one hand if 15 private buildings that were obliterated because you never know, of course, if they were um, people's homes. We don't know. But what we do know is that by obliterating 15 private buildings, including a courthouse, that means that the enemy will not have access to other buildings for uh, troops to um, lodge buildings where officers can um, meet for um, to... uh, to discuss uh, strategy, um, talk um, intelligence gathering. So it does put them at a bit of a disadvantage. Now, in the days leading up to September 11th of 1814, both sides went above and beyond to secure their positions. The Americans dug steep cuts, or what we refer to as ditches or trenches, around their structures, whereas the British devised gun positions north of the Saranac River, Brigadier General Alexander Macomb is aware that that the British um, knew of knew about Pike's Ford being in American hands, but as for uh, Macomb, he went about ordering his men under cover of darkness to engage in acts of observation involving all roads between Pike's Ford and Plattsburg. In other words. For Brigadier General Macomb, this strategy meant to show the British Army that their numbers, while they may not be anywhere as high as um, George Prevost's are, but that whatever uh, increase in numbers had occurred for the Americans, they had grown over a short time span. And many in Plattsburgh, and just on the outskirts of Plattsburgh along the villages 
of Lake Champlain along the New York State side are answering the call of duty. They know that so much lies at stake. I've said that a lot, but it is true, folks. I mean, we have to constantly remind ourselves that the War of 1812, yes, it, it is a forgotten war, but it is a war not only for America's economic independence, but also it's a second war for independence in terms of America's um, in terms of America's security as an independent sovereign nation. Governor in Chief um, Sir George Prevost, he is viewed as a cautious and hesitant commander. He's not bold or aggressive. But the, the British might have had more men, but Macomb's forces, being outnumbered, were willing to fight, knowing what truly lied at stake. I know I just said it a minute ago. I'll say it again. America's survival is an independent nation. This is victory or death, folks. There may not be a tomorrow. You know, and I'm sure many in Plattsburgh are wondering, how, how much longer will we wake up um, knowing that we still live under the still live under a nation known as the United States how much longer will i wake up and and still be able to see an, an american flag out there what happens if we lose yes the british take lake, lake champlain they will you know take the hudson river as well but could they end up uh, raising a british flag and and removing an american flag there's so many questions here folks so many questions of uncertainty because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Here's a uh, reversal question here. Usually when when people ask us this, like what are the pros and the cons or what are the advantages and disadvantages to something, my question to you all is the following. What disadvantages and advantages met Master Commandant Thomas McDonough? I should say, Master Naval Commandant Thomas McDonough comes September 9th. From a disadvantage perspective, McDonough's fleet relocated further away from Lake Champlain's shores by venturing southeast. Okay, so why is that a disadvantage in terms of relocating further away from the shores? Well, by relo- by being stationed on the shores you are probably more immune than you are, say, being in the middle of the water of Lake Champlain or being further upstream. That's just the 101, um, the, the 101 element. Um, by venturing southeast, this relocation piece now means that um, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough's fleet is away from British artillery. In other words, they will um, be spared or avoid the brunt of, uh, of any artillery um, damage that could be very extensive to where the fleet could be wiped out within a matter of um, not just minutes, but say within an, within an hour's time frame when actual battle comes. But the, the problem is that by being um, further away from... The, the real problem is that by being further away from Lake Champlain's shores, it simply means that Master Commandant McDonough's fleet will not be able to assist Brigadier General Alexander Macomb's forts and blockhouses with backup ammunition against enemy gun positions. 
So in other words, by being forced away from Lake Champlain shores, he's not going to be able, uh, Macomb, not Macomb, but I, I should say McDonough's not going to be able to help rally Alexander Macomb's um, defenses. That it, it appears that way as of right now. But from an advantage perspective, by keeping the entire fleet within Cumberland Bay, this is where he's at now, Thomas McDonough has sought to keep the fight directly there. Why would you want to keep the fight directly um, within Cumberland Bay? Cumberland Bay, folks, is not even five miles wide. It's less than five miles. It's matter of fact, I read that Cumberland Bay is only two miles wide. Cumberland Bay's waters are unstable to where shoals extended from the shore. Winds in Cumberland Bay were unpredictable, meaning that Captain George Downey's fleet would have to rely on cold winds from the north to move downward along Lake Champlain. You know, folks, we have to be reminded that there was a time when when people were sailing the waters, and this dates back to even the 17th century and just before during the Age of Exploration when uh, Europeans were sailing across the Atlantic Ocean, whether it was Christopher Columbus, Ferdinand Magellan, Hernando de Cortez, uh, Amerigo Vespucci, the list goes on and on. But, you know, people were sailing these waters in wooden vessels, but they did not have electric motors. They didn't have a key to just start the engine and say, here we go, we're, we're navigating along the waters. No, folks, these men had to rely on the winds if you didn't get favorable winds, you did not. Uh, your journey didn't start right away when you wanted it to. So we have to be reminded, folks, that um, that uh, winds were heavily relied upon in order to be able to uh, sail downward and to navigate um, the currents going upward, uh, regardless of whether it was the ocean, a lake, a river. I mean, that's just the way it was. So for uh, Master Commandant Thomas McDonough staying um, in um, Cumberland Bay is a very wise decision. He would rather bring the he would rather uh, Downey's fleet risk coming into Cumberland Bay and and knowing that they might have greater disadvantages, largely in part because Master Commandant Thomas McDonough knows far more about Lake Champlain than uh, Robert than uh, than uh, Captain George Downey would given how poor of a decision in the change of leadership has um, evolved within such a short, uh, sudden time frame. Commandant McDonough went about placing his ships per a line. Of course, you have to remember, not all ships are lined up side by side. But he has gone about, he will go about placing his ships per a line going from northeast to southwest within Cumberland Bay. Interesting to think that Cumberland Bay being only two miles wide, and he can do this. I think it's remarkable. The 20-gun Eagle will be at the northernmost unit. It's the northernmost unit, followed next by the 26-gun flagship Saratoga, 17-gun Ticonderoga, 7-gun Preble. The lineup, this lineup was devised the way it was for one main reason, 
The lineup itself was intended to prevent British ships from sailing around or intercepting American vessels per their, per their positions. In other words, Master Commandant McDonough is basically doing everything that he knows that he has available to prevent his fleet from being outflanked. In other words, if we leave any tiny spot open, if we leave any section or crevice open, a, a British vessel can come from another angle, or not just a British vessel, but perhaps two or three can come and start knocking out one or two of our vessels. And because of the hole that we've left, the rest of our fleet now becomes all the more vulnerable. So you want to, you don't stack everybody side by side, but you give them enough space not a super amount of space, but enough space to where you can fill the hole once an enemy ship is making its way, uh, regardless of uh, angle, you can still fill the gap to where you can um, to where you can prevent the worst case scenario from happening. So uh, McDonough relied upon um, standard anchor practices, most notably a procedure called in quotations, winding the ship. Or, yeah, winding the ship. Winding allowed or enabled the commander to bring a new set of gun, new set of guns from one side into use, should guns from the other end or section be disabled. So, in other words, we're not putting all of our eggs in one basket, but when we wind the ship, we're allowing um, the ship itself to still be in the game. We haven't given up on the ship, but we are bringing a new set of guns from one side should the other uh, section be disabled. Thomas McDonough has done his homework all right. I mean, the battle, the, the official battle will begin on the 11th, but he is doing everything there is to be prepared. He's not cautious. I mean, yes, he, he, he is cautious to some extent, but he is also aggressive. He knows he's got to be a little bit of everything, but he knows that he probably has to be far more aggressive than cautious in order to be just one step ahead. And the same would go for Brigadier General Alexander McComb. We learned from the previous podcast that that the two of them, yes, did have some differences, but they have certainly proven that they have to that you need to put whatever differences you have aside and work together uh, for the best of your country, given that this situation really is a matter of life and death for America's uh, existence as an independent sovereign nation. Come September 8th, was Sir George Prevost's army ready to attack? Yes. However, the uh, Navy, or I should say the um, naval fleet, still isn't fully 100% ready to go. Every other British vessel is ready to go, but the flagship HMS Confiance wasn't, due to her guns not being totally equi- totally equipped. I tell you, I, I just have to wonder, why didn't the British send the other vessels? Couldn't, if they had sent the other vessels by now, they would have been able to have had more time, even though, yes, Captain George Downey is on borrowed time, given that he may not have had enough experience, or given that he has had no experience on Lake Champlain, um, he could have at least modified his circumstances by by basic, well, he was the commander of the Confiance, so he obviously couldn't leave the Confiance, but at least have sent the other vessels down and at least had them 
had those officers on the other vessels at least start preparing. Yes, it's even a dire situation for them, but this is where uh, planning at the last minute has uh, fallen apart, especially for the mightiest power in the world. Now, um, yes, uh, HMS Confiance does uh, join the rest of the fleet on September 8th. Gun crews reported to their stations just that day, but come next day, the Confiance's battery, a.k.a. group of weapons, got tested for the first time. You get them tested for the first time, you hope that they're going to work the rest of the time, but <laughs> there, there may not be a guarantee of that either. Although uh, Sir George uh, Prevost was known for being too cautious of a commander, he eventually got frustrated and impatient with Captain Downey. If I was in his shoes, I would too. Due to the fact that a great opportunity had potential to now come apart, given U.S. forces' numbers were complete opposite, but even for Prevost, he now is he now is feeling... He's very skeptical, and now he's beginning to realize that, hey, even though the United States' forces are opposite of ours, they might now have more advantage than we do, given that they have had more time on the waters of Champlain to actually line up their whole uh, squadron. We, we have squandered now that golden opportunity. Uh, what action uh, did Captain Downey pursue come September 10th? <laughs> he chose to sail... But believe it or not, folks, Mother Nature had other plans in store due to strong winds blowing from the south, which delayed his game plan strategy. There again, folks, Mother Nature has proven in times, even with war, where she has helped one side but hindered another side's advancement to where that side whose advancement, whose potential advancements were hindered, ended up um, losing a battle. Prevost's forces had waited in check, folks, since 6 a.m. on the morning of September 10th, thus preventing them from not um, breaking the United States' position due to Downey's warships not having arrived. September 11th, the British naval fleet got a needed break where the winds were now favorable coming from the northeast, which enabled them to set sail prior to dawn, a.k.a. sunrise. As we're getting to the end here, this is a question that um, that it's not just impacting one group of people. If you're on the side of the British, you have to wonder, where is your mentality as well? Mentality for many people, both British and those within the United States, was that the enemy, a.k.a. Britain, would most likely overrun American and naval forces to where Lake Champlain, Plattsburgh, and all the way south to the Hudson River connecting the Atlantic Ocean would be entirely in the hands of the enemy, being uh, the British. And if that were the case, then the United States as a nation could simply crumble, fall apart. You've already got a um, capital that is reeling from the flames and only one building is really op- is still functioning, being the patent building. That's where Congress is meeting, folks. Both houses of Congress, uh, the go- pretty much uh, what the um, everyone from the Treasury Department, uh, the sec- from those working for the Secretary of State. But we have to remember, 
back during that time, you didn't have the same number of people working for the government like you do today. It's probably fair to say that, um, I want to say for the Secretary of War, there may have been only five or six people working for him. That was a lot of people at that time. But now we have to ask ourselves, okay, we've got this huge crisis now up north. It's just a matter of, it's just going to be a matter of a few short days before a battle is going to ensue on Lake Champlain where the fate of the United States might, um, might ultimately lie. But further south, we have to wonder, where could the British go past Washington? I mean, yes, they've secured 100 miles of coast up in Maine, but could the British advance on Philadelphia? Could they advance on um, on New Jersey? Could they go all the way to Boston? I mean, they already had forced uh, the people of Nantucket into a um, a treaty agreement, not not a um, national treaty agreement, but some kind of a temporary compromise where they agreed to have um, supplies and rations be imported from the mainland over um, to um, Nan- over to Nantucket to where um, by doing so they would per- they would agree to have partic- they would agree not to uh, take arms with either side in this conflict. But many people are beginning to wonder, would Annapolis or Baltimore be the next target? You know, Baltimore is America's fourth largest city at this time. And that is a very uh, surreal possibility. But something tells me that the people of Baltimore are all, have already been in the works preparing for, um, for what lies at stake. The people of Baltimore, I can tell you this much, are outraged by what happened in Washington. And because they are so outraged... They, um, they, they know that they don't have time to sit back and wait for the enemy to come to them. They are going to be. They're going to take matters into their own hands, with the help of um, officials, military officials in Baltimore, by uh, digging trenches, by doing everything there is in terms of uh, building fortifications or what we call redoubts, to where when the enemy comes, and they want to wage war on us on our own soil, we're going to take it to them. We're not gonna. We're gonna fight. We'll fight to the very end. But if there's one thing that uh, the people of Baltimore don't want to have happen, is to wake up one morning and see a British flag flying over Fort McHenry. Well, that uh, concludes uh, for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode. When I'm on the air again next, folks, we are actually going to be uh, talking about September 11th, 1814, the day in which the official battle begins. It's very possible that it could be a two-part episode. I think it would be probably more enjoyable to talk about it in two uh, podcast segment episodes. But we are now at that moment of the day in which um, the actual battle on Lake Champlain takes place. A moment in time that um, you think about, folks, September 11th, 1814. This could be a potential of a 9-11. We have to wonder... August 24th of 1814 was a 9-11. Do we want another 9-11 to happen? It was bad enough that our capital was burnt. The British were under the mentality that by burning the capital that, uh, that America would just fall to her knees. But further up north now, we have to wonder, will America prevent, um, will America be better ready than she was on just a few weeks back on the 24th? 
of August 1814. Well, we'll find that out as we keep moving forward in the Battle of Lake Champlain, a brilliant and extraordinary victory. Thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. Take care for now.